back to the sociology seminar. There are some more seats in front. I'm really happy to welcome Professor Paula England to the department. Uh, it's fair to say that uh, Professor England is one of the m most um, sort of prominent scholar uh, working on gender inequality issues in the world. Um, he, uh, she was um, uh, teaching at Stanford University uh, until about a year ago, and from last um, uh, fall, she, she was uh, visiting NYU, and I just gathered that uh, she's now staying in New York and, uh, and will be Professor of Sociology there. Um, Paula uh, was uh, editor of the ASR in the mid-1990s, and she worked on a whole lot of really important issues on uh, gender segregation, uh, wage gaps, and a uh, whole, whole lot of other um, related issues. So she's going to give an overview about our progress of uh, gender inequality. So without further ado. Thank you. So what I want to do today is give a kind of broad um, overview talk about uh, change in gender. Now, you know, I have to plead guilty to, like most American scholars, um, I will use data that's relentlessly U.S. Um, I'll comment occasionally uh, on there's a couple of places where I know a little bit about is this the same or different uh, in the UK, and you may know much more about that, and we can perhaps discuss that afterwards. Um, <clears throat> wrong place. Okay. So I want to look at trends with an eye to um, whether women change more than men. So my title says, you know, the gender revolution uneven. Uh, one way in which it's uneven is that women change more than men. Another way in which it's uneven is by social class, so I want to talk about how gender equalizing change has varied by social class, which I'll approximate by education or the education of your parents. Um, and then I want to talk about the business of is the gender revolution, evolution, I guess evolution, revolutions can't continue forever, right? Um, but um, is the change continuous or is it sort of stalled out? And some places I'll talk about what's behind these patterns of change. Now, of course, there's a lot deeper stuff about what's the explanation of the inequalities in the first place, which we can talk about, but um, is not my focus here. So my first theme, um, which I'll call now asymmetric gender change, is that change has been really uneven and women have changed more than men. Um, and so, you know, the way that works is that women have entered what we could call traditionally male domains more than the reverse. Um, the change has been kind of a one-way street. <clears throat> now, both rewards, male activities tend to be more rewarded, and cultural approval discourage men to move out of their own occupations into women's occupations or out of employment into homemaking, um, out of playing with boys' toys into playing with girls' toys. Um, so it's maybe not surprising that we see less change by men um, into gender atypical um, things. Rewards encourage women to change, 
although the culture may discourage it, so there's, you know, there's some tension there, um, but you do have these incentives for change. So I'm just going to give you some examples of that. And the simplest example of this is employment. Um, you know, there's been this big increase. This is, as I said, all my graphs except one are U.S. data. Um, so this is the percent of women employed from 1960 to about the present, and you see it goes up dramatically. Um, it's not as if every woman that entered the labor force, you know, some man went out. Um, so it's really a kind of not too much change with men, and this little decline that you have with men is more about spending more time in schooling and retiring earlier than, you know, men becoming homemakers. Um, now... In a later part of my talk, I'm going to talk about is the change uneven, but so I don't have to give you the same graph over again, although my point here is the asymmetry of change. We might just notice that the change is quite dramatically upward here, and then it really flattens out. Now, there's been this whole um, press discourse in the U.S. over the last few years um, talking about the opt-out revolution. Um, that putative counter-revolution is actually this little downturn right here. So the press gets obsessed about small things, you know. And there was a little downturn, and it was real. Um, it wasn't really very big in the total scheme of things. You know, if you use some other subgroups and stuff, it can look a little bigger. Um, and yeah, it's true there was a downturn for men too, but the women's downturn was bigger. So, I mean, it was real, but it's trivial. And I think, that, but... Um, on the other hand, what, what is really true is that this is pretty flat, you know, if you take this whole since 1990. Um, and that appears to me, I pulled up some British data to be similar uh, in, the, in the UK. I mean, there's the, the increase up until 1990 isn't as monotonic in the UK. There's kind of a little more bumping around, but it looks like overall it really slowed down uh, recently as well. Um, so back to our theme of um, women are changing and men aren't. This is a graph about um, percent of men and women who had a particular undergraduate major. So the um, denominator here for either of these lines is um, all persons of that sex who got a bachelor's degree. And this is what percent of all persons getting a bachelor's degree of all women getting a bachelor's degree majored in business and what percent of men majored in business. Now, the point is here that, you know, historically business is a much more male field than female, um, and the nature of the change here is that a lot more women started majoring in business, um, and they didn't quite get up to the same percent of men that are majoring in it, uh, but pretty close, and then now it's kind of whatever's driving it, the two sexes are kind of moving together. Um, so this is another example of uh, gender change in which women are changing to become more like men had traditionally been. However, again, thinking forward to the, the other theme we're going to talk about, about stalled change, you see that um, the real action was in the 70s and first half of the 80s. Um, of women moving into business. Um, and in general, <clears throat> that's kind of true in the U.S. that the desegregation of majors in college 
had pretty is, is sort of a 70 to 85 thing and then really stalls out. Um, here's here's uh, women changing again, but from the other side. So English, uh, you know, which in U.S. universities is sort of study of English literature, I assume it is here too, um, is something, and, you know, people that major in English, well, they can do all sorts of different things. But in any case, it's been historically um, a disproportionately female major, as you can see by a higher percent of uh, women than men are majoring in it. Uh, but here, what you see is not that men increased in this female field, but that women dramatically decreased. You also see here that it's played out by some time in the 80s. Um, so that's, another, that's an example of women sort of leaving a traditional... I mean, in other words, some of these, these women that were majoring in business, they're sort of the analogs that a generation before or a few cohorts before would have been majoring in perhaps English. Or perhaps they would have been majoring in elementary education because <laughs> the astounding statistic here, right, is that um, in 1971 between a fifth and a fourth of all American women getting an undergraduate degree were getting an elementary education. If you added uh, you know, people that were going to go teach high school, it would be even higher. So this is like, you know, it's like the elephant in the room. And that just plummeted. But again, it's not like men went into this more female field. No, I mean, there was approximately zero doing it before and there's approximately zero doing it now. Um, so... Um, but then again, here on the, on the, are things stalled? You see that this change had been played out by the middle 80s, and it's been pretty flat since. So I'm not going to, you know, go and give you, I think this is the last such graph, yes. Um, the point is, this is kind of a general pattern, that there are some traditionally male fields where women really came on, came on like gangbusters, especially the business-related ones. Um, like marketing, accounting, also in this category. Um, actually, not as much in the fields that we have all the literature on, the, the um, science, engineering, and math. Uh, well, a actually, math in the U.S., for some bizarre reason, has really integrated the undergraduate major, but not so much like physics and chemistry and, and stuff. But it's a very tiny proportion of men that major in that stuff also. Um, <clears throat> so... My point is that the nature of the gender change is primarily more women start doing things that have been traditionally male. I won't say none of it occurred, but not so much men start doing stuff that was traditionally female. Okay, so the other way in which gender change is uneven is by class. So if we use education as a rough indicator, my claim is going to be that there's less gender equalizing change among the less educated than among college graduates with respect to occupation and employment. So um, here's a graph um, making the occupation point. Now, um, and I'm borrowing this from, there's a wonderful website by Reeve Vanneman, Dave Cotter, and Joan Hermson in the United States. It's all U.S. data. But um, if you Google the phrase, end of the gender revolution, you will get this website. Um, it's very cool. They got like a million graphs up there. So this is, shows you the trends in 
occupational segregation by sex of the whole labor force um, from 70 to 2000. Um, and um, they're dividing people by the people's education and then computing the segregation within there. They're using the detailed occupational categories. And this is the index of dissimilarity. So high is more segregated. It goes from 0 to 100. Um, so now, ignore the rank order of these two lines because they go against my thesis. But let's, if you're willing to humor me and say, well, these are pretty close to being the same. Um, it seems to me the big picture here is that, uh, yeah, there's been desegregation for all educational groups, but it's really big for the college grads and not so big for everybody else. Um, so, uh, you know, so that's an example of more gender equalizing change in what we could call, I don't know, the upper middle class or something. <clears throat> now, um, degrees segregation of fields of bachelor degrees using the same index of dissimilarity. Now, this is only people that finished college, but you do see some real desegregation there. Again, on the, is it stalled? You know, it's sort of played out by the middle, as you saw in my specific field examples. Um, so the interesting question is, College graduate women did integrate all these traditionally male professions. I mean, not all of them, but you know, there was a lot. There was a lot of integration there. Um, why didn't working-class women integrate male blue-collar jobs? Because that's why we don't see this, you know, this um, <clears throat> desegregation in the in the lower education. And the reason I'm focusing on women integrating male stuff, not male men integrating female stuff, is as we've already established, the latter doesn't happen that much. So most of what did happen was women integrating male stuff. So, <clears throat> I mean, one answer is blue-collar jobs were contracting. I mean, it's easier to integrate something that's expanding. Um, some people argue that there's more hiring discrimination in blue-collar jobs. Now, this has been asserted more than I think it's been shown, um, but it's certainly plausible. Um, and sometimes the hiring discrimination by employers, maybe employers kind of following what the workers themselves in that field want. Um, and we might think that men who are in blue-collar jobs fight harder to keep women out of their jobs than professional men in, you know, say, law or medicine or something. And the argument for this would be that sort of lacking class privilege, you fight harder to keep gender privilege. Um, now, again, this is sort of speculative, but I think it's, it's a very plausible um, hypothesis. <clears throat> I think there's also a, a plausible supply-side hypothesis. Um, so, you know, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, Women in women that for whom the counterfactual is, you know, you're not going to go to college, um, or 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 you know, if you do like what your mother did, you're going to end up in a female job like waitress or secretary. And you say, take such a woman. So she, let's say she comes from a blue collar background. Now, how can she increase her earnings? She could increase her earnings by moving to a blue-collar male job, you know, plumber, construction, or something. Or she could get more education and move to a higher status female job, such as teacher, nurse, or social worker. Um, <clears throat> so um, 
in a way, there's kind of um, two options. Now, their own internalized gender identities, or whatever you want to call it, sexual socialization, we called it in the old days, um, or harassment by men in the male jobs may encourage the latter. So, I mean, one hypothesis I have is that um, that another way to put this is because there is an option by which such women can move ahead without challenging gender boundaries, it may make it more likely that they try to move ahead that way rather than going into these male jobs. And then all the more so if the male jobs are contracting and the men are trying to keep them out. Um, so the flip side of this question is, well, then, you know, why did college-educated women integrate male occupations? And, and really, we're just trying to say, why did the college-educated women integrate male occupations more than the uh, non-college did? So... <clears throat> And, I mean, the desegregation of recent decades in occupations is mostly coming from women college graduates going into management, going into male professions. Um, So one way to think about why these women did this, I mean, after all, they presumably had traditional gender socialization of some sort, too, is that for these women... Let's say their mothers, if they were employed, were secretaries or social workers or nurses or teachers. In order for them to move up in status or pay relative to their mothers, their aunts, their older sisters, you know, previous cohorts in their social class, they would have to go into a male field, um, like becoming a manager rather than a social worker, or an accountant rather than a teacher, or a doctor rather than a nurse. Um, so. So in a sense, my hypothesis is that partly these women did it because it was the only way they could sort of move up, whereas for blue-collar women there was a way to move up without going out of the, uh, of the um, sort of uh, gender traditional fields. Um, so... To put this in a more abstract way, and again, this supply-side hypothesis is not, I don't think, the whole story, but I think it's part of the story. Um, I'm sort of saying people are more likely to violate taken-for-granted gendered ideas, paths, boundaries, whatever you want to call it, um, when they can't move up, um, up relative to some reference point, except by violating those gendered paths. And so also implicit in this is that there is some sort of accepted idea of uh, up is better, you know, everybody's trying to move up, um, and that this is somewhat accepted for women as well as men. Um, So on this supply side part of the hypothesis, is there any evidence? And so evidence would be that... I mean, this is um, a kind of indirect way of getting it. If we looked at um, which young women aspire to male-typical or female-typical jobs, and we looked at a difference by social class background approximated by the education of the women's mother. So that's what I'm going to show you here. 
Um, and then I'm sort of interested in the U.S. context. Is this just a story for white women? And so, you know, you see my answers. But I'll, let me just show you the graph. All right, so, um, so we have white women over here, black women over here. So the, the, the way this... Um, the way this analysis is done, it's from a, a data set, the NLSY, um, which in 1979 asked women the occupation. At, so the women were 14 to 20 or so in 1979, and they're asked what occupation they want to be in when they're 35 years old. So that's my aspiration. So words come out of their mouth, they get coded into the census categories, and they get. And then I went to the closest census of that time and categorized them by percent female. All right, I'm leaving out the middle category, so what percent wanted to be in an occupation that's 0 to 33% female, so we could call that a male occupation that's this, this much female, and then there was the mixed in between, but to make the graph tractable, I left them off. So the point is that um, what we see over here among white women, I mean, the, the pattern's actually very similar for black and white women, is that, and this is your mother's education, the mother of the respondent. So... The, the higher the mother's education, the more likely the woman is to aspire to a, ma more, a male occupation. And, you know, this is just the flip side. The higher her mom's education, the less likely she is to aspire to a female occupation. Um, and the pa pattern is basically the same for black women. Black women, on average, are aspiring to more female occupations than white women. I don't know why that is, but um, the pattern by education is, is very similar. So <clears throat> you can see it back in the aspirations, which would be evidence that it's partly from the supply side. Um, so all of that is to get us to where it's mostly college graduate women who are entering these traditionally male fields. Um, but we don't want to exaggerate, you know, what gender benders they are um, because, in fact, a lot of them go into sort of female-intensive subparts of male-dominant professions. Um, so an example of that would be look at people that get doctorates. Now, you know, if we're talking about the period of 1970 to 2000 or something, obviously getting a doctorate in, which usually implies an aspiration to be a professor, is inherently, no matter what the field is, choosing something that's been traditionally male, you know, even, you know, even, for example, sociology has long been more feminine than, you know, chemistry or something, but when I was going to college, all the professors were men, uh, and most people getting PhDs were were um, were men. Um, so doctoral study is kind of an interesting subcase because we can see well you can you can get your PhD in a more female intensive field but still go into this overall male career of academia. Um, and interestingly enough, the parallel analysis to what I showed you for BAs. This is just the index of dissimilarity. Um, the simple D um, for fields of doctoral degree receipt, uh, there's very little desegregation. I mean, I'll call that flat. It goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up. Um, and I can show you in more detail what was sort of going on between this. Um, I'm going to just show you selected large fields, but it gives you the picture of the whole thing. So <clears throat> the way this graph sets up is 
Um, I'm going to bring in one field at a time. And from 71 to 2006, you see, of all the people getting PhDs in it, what was the trend in the percent female of people getting PhDs in that field? So the most male of all fields, this is actually a combination of what used to be called electrical, sort of obsolete, and electronic engineering. But if you took all engineering, it would look pretty similar. So there's engineering. There's physics. There's math. There's economics. Close cousin to math, I see. <clears throat> there's political science. There's history. Now, this is the line if you take all PhD fields combined, not just the ones I'm showing you. Um, you know. So this is essentially what happened to the percent of all people getting PhDs that were female. You know, it's just, that's just going up monotonically. And actually, this is one real exception to my thing about changes stalled. And actually, education in general, uh, and, and this is true, I think, in most um, industrialized countries that, you know, man, women love education. They're just coming on like gangbusters, and they seem to love PhDs, too. And this is, you know, shows no sign. If anything, this trend appears to be escalating. Um, this is biology. Here's sociology. I have no idea what this thing is. I mean, this is obviously some weird blip in the... It's obviously a data error, but I've never been able to pin it to anything. It's, there's some parallel thing right there. Um, and that's uh, education. And I, um, I'm calling this, yeah, it's doctorates, not PhDs, really, because it includes the EDDs. So the point of this is this is actually consistent with the line that says there's essentially no desegregation because essentially what you see is with a lot of noise, makes all the little jerky things, um, it's a bunch of parallel curves, right? So really what happened is a lot more women, absolutely and relative to men, got PhDs, and that trend continues unabated. But conditional on getting a PhD, it seems like men and women are choosing fields pretty much like they always did. Every field is feminizing um, from, you know, the, the worst culprits down here. Um, but the rank order of the fields remains pretty much the same. So the point of that is that, in one sense, these upper, mostly, I mean, not everybody, but mostly upper middle class background women who are getting PhDs, yes, in one sense, they're kind of gender bending to choose a career that, that being a professor that's traditionally male. Um, but in another sense, they're kind of choosing the same fields as are men that women in the past choosing PhDs always have. And that's true here. It's not entirely true at the BA level where there was some real desegregation. Oh, I forgot psychology. Okay. That's all our fields. Um, okay, so now I want to talk about um, employment and social class. Now, there's really two contrary hypotheses we could have here. We might say less educated women are typically single moms or married to poorer guys, so they need the money. So we'd expect them to be employed at higher rates than well-educated women on the they-need-the-money idea. Um, but more educated women, although more likely to be married and married to richer guys, have greater incentives for employment. They can earn a lot more. So you know what e economists would call the opportunity cost effect or the price effect as opposed to the income effect. Um, and, you know, in the extreme, if you can't even earn as much as childcare costs, um, 
given that it's not like your husband's going to stay home with the kids if you go into the workforce in most cases, um, then from a financial point of view, what's the point? And then, of course, the, the well-educated women can get more interesting jobs, too. So from this reasoning, we'd expect more educated women to be more employed. So, you know, either is a reasonable hypothesis, and both effects are probably kind of there, but which one predominates empirically? And it's actually very clear which predominates empirically. I've thrown men in here, too, but this is just one year, 2000. What percent the gray bars of women are employed at different educational levels? So women who didn't finish high school, only half are employed, up to 82% of college grads. And if you split these people out by some graduate work, post, you know, post bachelors, you know, they're even higher than the mere four-year college grads. And it's very monotonic. And by the way, this isn't really new news. It's been true all the way back to 1950 in the US. And I know that this pattern is true today in the UK, that more educated women are more likely to be employed. Um, I, I, I can give you, actually, I'm carrying a paper with me. Well, it's in your office. But, um, uh, and and it's, I've actually just worked on a paper using the list data. It's true in virtually every country that the more educated women are more likely to be employed. Um, <clears throat> and while you'll notice there's a little bit of a little mushiness in my logic here because I started this out as a paper about trends, and I'm just giving you a cross-sectional thing here. Um, so is it true that the trend, upward trend in women's employment is higher for the higher educated? Well, I don't quite want to say that because it turns out that it gets into some really boring, geeky details like are we talking about the absolute trend or the ratio of women's demands or you know the log odds of the difference and in some of those metrics it is and in some of them it isn't so I'll, I'll stay away from saying that but I can say that where we are today is that on the dimension of are women employed, it's a much more gender, gender equal world um, among the highly educated. Be now, it's also true, though, that highly educated men are more employed. Um, but, you know, if you look here, even in a kind of relative term, it's clear that, you know, the contrast here is bigger um, in any metric you want to put it than the contrast there. So now let's go to the question of is change stalled? And I think the answer for the US at least is yes. Um, on many indicators, change has at least slowed down. Um, we already saw that the desegregation of college majors stalled out by the mid-80s. The percent of women employed largely plateaued by in the 90s. So let's look at some other indicators. Now, here's my one graph that isn't all US. And those of you attending this seminar regularly saw this graph earlier this year because when Maria Charles presented here. So she shared this with me. Now, unfortunately, I can't tell which of these yellow-green looking lines is, is the UK. But um, she believes that if you just gestalt that graph, it sort of shows that in general for these developed countries, uh, change, it's not true in every case, like the ones really at the bottom here are still really increasing, but change is kind of leveling off. Um, so I just put that up there for the geometry of it. Um, 
back to the U.S. data, if we take the gender earnings gap in the U.S., um, it's actually still improving, but um, so up is good here. Women are making a higher percent of men. But you can see the, the really big um, improvements really is uh, 80s and early 90s, and it's kind of flattening out somewhat after that. <clears throat> this is um, gender attitudes. So, you know, they, this is also from this uh, Cotter et al. Um, website, but they actually have a paper coming out in uh, AJS. Um, and they use the general social survey, you know, this kind of omnibus uh, U.S. survey that's done year after year, and they have a bunch of attitude questions on there, including some gender items, which are summarized here. And um, they've been asking, I mean, the questions are a little old-timey, but they've been asking the same ones for years, so you can look at a trend. So scaling things such that egalitarian is up um, and, you know, cutting it somewhere and saying what percent of people um, take the egalitarian position starting in 1976. So you can see you have this period here of big egalitarian change on all the items. Then it kind of slows down, and then you have a period here where things are getting less egalitarian, and then since about 2000, they've been going back up again. So um, clearly there's not some you know, master monotonic inexorable trend there. Now, I want to say something about more kind of relational patterns between men and women, um, but you'll notice here I don't have any graphs, so this is sort of you know, like, I think we all could agree on this by common observation, but, you know, you may not agree. So it seems to me there's very little change in ideas like men should be taller than the women they're at. And, and now you, that we have these web dating things, um, it's very, like, height is like a big thing there, you know, um, that people worry about. And there also seems, um, and I actually do have some data on this, um, in the U.S. at least to be, I mean, the date may be dying, but the idea that men are supposed to initiate stuff seems to me to be still pretty much uh, firmly there. Um, and even with all the change in women's earnings and, and, um, and uh, employment, I think the idea that men are more responsible for earning than women and not as responsible for childbearing, I mean, particularly the latter, is still there, um, even while women's careers and, and employment are accepted. So I don't want to say there's no change in that. Obviously, the change in women's employment is huge, um, and it is pretty well accepted. Um, but so it seems to me that on all of these things, um, it, it seems like these things where it's, it's sort of really inherently relational um, and also a little more in the, quote, private sphere, there is not as much, there's not as much gender change. So what's behind these patterns in the trends? Um, and, and I'm talking first about the business that... Um, the change is uneven in the sense of women changing more and uh, well-educated people changing more. So 
I'm, and I'm drawing here from some work from uh, Maria Charles. Sometimes she's working with Bradley or Grusky, um, but I think it's, it's really, she's at the center of these ideas, I think, that two principles have a lot of cultural and institutional support. One is, we could call it the equal opportunity principle, but that you know, status, earnings, education, upward mobility are valued for women as well as men. But also that women and men are good at and want different things, what she calls gender essentialism. That is, people sort of simultaneously believe in equal opportunity and believe, well, but women are fundamentally different than men. I guess they don't believe they're quite as different than men as they used to when, you know, you used to think that it would destroy your ovaries to go to medical school or, you know, something like that or to get a degree or... Um, so... What's the play out of those two different principles? Um, well, women with greater in, in incentives to move up, or excuse me, to move into male activities, and women who can't move up without moving into male activities are more likely to cross gender boundaries. That's, you know, the greater incentives, I think, is why you have higher rates of employment among well-educated women. And um, the... Um, you can't move up without moving into male positions is why I think that you saw more occupational desegregation among well-educated women. But where the relational aspects of gender are most clear, where it would be most clear that we'd be giving up a notion of gender in essentialism, like in male-female relationships, gender is clung to the most. So I think those two principles help explain some of these empirical regularities that we've seen. Um, so, um, just to kind of recap, despite needing the money more, less educated women are less likely to be employed because they can't earn much more than childcare costs. Jobs they can get aren't that good. They're less likely to move into male jobs because working class men resist their entry, um, and they often choose to get more education and seek a higher female job, something the well-educated women can't do. Um, the college-educated women although needing the money less, um, can get better jobs. They have to move into male jobs to move up, um, so some did. But when they can go high while still picking female-intensive fields, many, many do. Um, and with respect to trends and the stalling, I guess for me the, the lesson of this project has been that, you know, there's nothing inexorably monotonic about change. I guess I sort of had the naive idea that, you know, gender equalizing change, once it starts, it just kind of goes on um, forever, but, or until, you know, equality or something like that. Um, but, you know, in fact, women's employment stopped growing much about 1990. Desegregation of college majors stopped about 1985. Um, other things have slowed. Attitudes have kind of bubbled up and down. Um, and my conclusion is that, I mean, one way to think about this is that some parts of the system are harder to change than others. They're more intractable, and I've tried to kind of grope for what are some of the principles underlying that. So I think the low-hanging fruit um, kind of has been picked. It got picked in at different timetables in different um, areas. Um, and 
there is nothing inexorable um, about it. Um, so, you know, predictions are hard to make. So let's discuss. Um, that's, that's all I have. Okay, thank you very much.